Welcome to the bookcase, or I should say, bienvenido. Uh, at least we keep looking for different ways to introduce this thing. Uh, anyway, I'm Charlie Gibson. I'm Kate Gibson, and to Spanish speakers everywhere out there, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. I apologize. Both my daughters and my wife have much better facility with the Spanish language than do I. We bring you today John Meacham, a well-known writer uh, who has written a new biography just out of Abraham Lincoln. And There Was Light is the name of the book. You know, I've read four biographies of Lincoln in the past 10 years, and John must have had to hunt for a title. I mean, there are thousands of books about Lincoln. <laughs> I, read the, I read the white biography, A. Lincoln, the Reynolds book, Abe, uh, David Herbert Donald's classic bio, Lincoln, Eric Foner's great book on Lincoln, The Fiery Trial. So I guess John was left with, and there is light. Well, it was either that or Abby Lincoln, you know, they called him Abby. I don't know. I, I, I don't <laughs> no. know. I, I, I don't have another title. He also has written some, I mean, he is an American treasure. He's written some of the greatest historical biographies. And he wrote, my personal favorite, John Meacham, is The Soul of America, which is largely about how America has come together in times of great trial. And There Was Light is a terrific book in the tradition of John Meacham's writing. Lincoln was a fascinating character. Character. And although this is probably the 950,000th biography on Lincoln, I found it both entertaining and I learned a heck of a lot. Well, John writes so well, and he has given us a very readable one-volume look at the complexities of Abraham Lincoln. He did it in just 420 pages. Can a biography be called a page-turner? Not often, but I think this one can. I thought it was an excellent, excellent book. And as John writes, we study Lincoln and study him and study him and study him because of all the biographies that are out. But we study him because he was, not because he was perfect, as John writes, but because he was a man whose inconsistencies resonate even now. The world, as I say, is littered with biographies of Lincoln and books about Lincoln. But he was president at the most critical point in American history, but also because he was such a complex character. And John states clearly in his prologue why studying Lincoln at this time in American political history is so pertinent. And thus, I think his book is so timely. Now, I want to say one other thing before we get to the conversation, because I want to get to the conversation as soon as possible, because he's awesome. And I now want to read everything that he's ever written. If you are a Civil War buff and you're looking to read about battles and you're looking to read about stats about the Civil War, this is not that book. This is a book very much about Lincoln the Man and Lincoln the Man's struggle during the Civil War. And I think it does an incredibly, incredibly effective job of that. But I just wanted to make that caveat. If you're looking to read the back and forth of Gettysburg, this is not going to be that. Yeah, that's John has not fallen into the trap of spending too much time on the tales of Civil War battles. I get lost in all of those, frankly. I mean, McClellan attacked to the right flank, Lee moved northward, Halleck thought there was an opening, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in the South and the North had different words for the battles, that they called battles different things, like anyway. Yeah. And John not too often gets into the intricacies of the battles. He really writes about how Lincoln reacted to victories and to frequent losses. And I, I appreciate that he really doesn't lose his focus on Lincoln himself. His position, Lincoln's position on slavery evolved. He wasn't afraid to change his positions. And as John characterizes him, he was a gradual emancipator. We don't allow our politicians that kind of leeway these days to let their positions evolve. Though, as John points out, had Lincoln's position on emancipation been where it was in 1864, if that had been his position in 1860 when he was first elected, he probably in all likelihood would not have been 
elected president. It's an interesting question whether or not politicians are able to change their mind. Do they not feel comfortable changing their mind? Or does the voting public not give them the luxury of changing their mind? Because changing your mind can be a sign of tremendous growth, saying, I was wrong and I've realized this now. And you're right, it just doesn't happen in politics anymore. An interesting conversation, John Meacham on his new book, And There Was Light, a biography, one volume biography of Abraham Lincoln. Here's John Meacham. John Meacham, a great pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I've been an admirer and a reader of yours for a long, long time. But I was curious when I saw that you were writing a biography of Abraham Lincoln. A quick Google search shows there's 15,000 books minimum about Lincoln. Why do we need another one? Well, I was misinformed. I thought he was an undercovered subject. So <laughs> apparently my, my Google wasn't working that day. For biographers, I think he's like Everest. You have to climb him or at least think about it. Like most of my books anyway, it was in the spirit of total candor born out of this historical moment that we are in. I believe that we are as divided as a country as we have been since the 1850s. And how one puts a democracy together in a durable form while pursuing justice is the consuming question of this era. And part of me wanted to go and see, while we can't wrench Lincoln from his particular times, of course, were there perennial lessons that grew out of, of his life. And to me, the central one was the role of conscience. He is seen often as a political creature, you know, a, a, a masterful manipulator of men and situations, and he was those things. But on several different vital occasions, he actually chose the harder and more conscientious route over the politically expedient. And I wanted to know where where that conviction came from. You talk about him as a president who led a divided country in which an implacable minority gave no quarter. And that president has much to teach us in a 21st century moment of polarization, passionate disagreement, and different understandings of reality. If <laughs> it, It's the impossible question. But Lincoln found his way through that. What do we do now? Depends on the characters of the leaders, but also of the led. And if Abraham Lincoln could, in an era where understandings of race, understandings of identity, understandings of rights were so radically different than our own, if he had the insight to understand that democracy was the plausible path forward for that pursuit of justice, as opposed to falling back to a racial aristocracy and autocracy, then he made a choice. And because he was not all that better than we were, he was fallen, frail, infallible. We're fallen, frail, infallible. But he made that choice. And I believe firmly that the utility of history in these kinds of conversations is not in treating it as a remote unattainable goal as a monument. And therefore, we shouldn't look up at it adoringly. And nor, as too many of us want to do, should we look down on it condescendingly, but look at it in the eye 
And if we look history in the eye, then maybe when we look in the mirror, we will see a people capable of making that right choice again. I wanted to ask you, you wrote or you said in a Publishers Weekly interview, I don't see how you can read and engage with Lincoln and abolition and the racist Confederate white supremacist struggle and not see that however difficult it is possible to produce a better tomorrow. Quotes like this, and I've read The Soul of America, and I hate to use the word optimist because I think it's a word that's become sort of trite, but it strikes me that you have a overall positive view of our potential. Has that always been true for you? And do you still hold that in such a divisive time that we live in? I do hold it. I appreciate the caveat on optimism. There was a marvelous tweet, and that's a small category, right? It's like French military victories in the 20th century. You know, it's a quick volume. (laughs) But about six or eight months ago, someone tweeted that if Mr. Rogers and Doris Goodwin had had a one-night stand, I would have resulted. And so <laughs> I think that's great. Doris was upset. But yeah, that's <laughs> she actually called. She said, couldn't we have fallen in love and you'd be the fruit of that union? I said, no, 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 sweetheart. He picked you up in the C-SPAN bar. Uh, I am a love yeah, child. I am a love child. I'm a love child with a red sweater and sneakers. I am optimistic. But the word I use is hopeful, uh, which is a, new, a slight nuance there. But it's not mindless because... It is historically based. The day before yesterday, I'm a Southerner. The day before yesterday, we lived under racial apartheid. Two days before yesterday, the second Klan was founded and swept the country. There were five governors, senators, 347 Klan delegates at the 1924 Democratic National Convention wouldn't vote for Al Smith to be the nominee because he was Catholic. That was 100 years ago. 102 years ago, okay, you couldn't vote, right? And I used to think 100 years was a long time until I got to be middle-aged. And now it's like, well, you know. Um, Charlie was covering all that. So, um, true. It seems to me, though, that in some ways, the political climate we live in now, you'd be hard-pressed to find a citizen who believes in a politician that would choose the morally righteous minority opinion over potential re-election. And it seems to me that you're asking in the book, would you have done what Lincoln did? And so I guess my question to you is, are we waiting for a Lincoln? And is there a possibility that it's out there, somebody who would jeopardize their re-election for the minority opinion? Or a populist that would listen to him or her? I don't want to be too brigadoonish about this, you know, that there's this fantasy world. But we have lived, all three of us, in eras where presidents have done that. George Herbert Walker Bush did that. I believe Joe Biden would do that, without question. I believe that if confronted with a choice for his political detriment or the self-evident national interest, I sit here confident that he would make that decision. I think President Obama would. And so I would urge everybody, and the reason to spend the work of our days on this kind of thing is not to create either cultural Zoloft, right? That somehow or another, it's all going to work out. It's not going to work out unless we work at it. And the fact that Lincoln transcended the limitations of his character and of his time should not be off-putting, but should be inspirational because he was not perfect. And yet, 
got just enough right just enough of the time to tell you how exciting what an exciting life i lead i was just reading norman mailer's coverage of the 1968 conventions i know it's exciting and he had this great line that i if i'd ever encountered it i'd forgotten it he said the thing about the kennedys bobby and jack was that they were just a little better than they ought to have been and therefore Perhaps they could help America be a little better than it ought to be. And I think that's true of Lincoln. Let me turn back to Lincoln for a minute, because he was an extraordinary politician in that he changed his mind as time went on. Something that politicians are loath to do these days. They may change their commercials for expedient purposes, but whether they change their minds, no. Well, I have a slightly different view of this which is that Lincoln was remarkably consistent in his anti-slavery convictions. And there is a trope about Lincoln that was in real time as well. Horace Greeley said he was essentially a growing man. Elizabeth Cady Stanton said the same thing. Noah Brooks, a journalist who covered him, who was sort of the Scotty Reston of the, of the era, believed that he had grown and changed. Usually when you say a politician has grown, what it means is they have come to agree with you. Uh, <laughs> right? That's the translation of that. But we should just stay on this idea about his conscience. He ran for president, clearly saying that slavery was wrong, that it could not be extended, and that it had to be put on what he called a path to ultimate extinction. Now, that is not to lionize him. There were four million people, perhaps more, who were enslaved in that era. And he was willing, he wrote, sent a message to Congress in 1862 that talked about a graduated, compensated plan that would have kept slavery in existence until 1900. It's very striking when you see that in the cold print of a presidential message, 1900. And the compensation, by the way, was not for the enslaved, but for the owners, like the British experience. The British liberated on a graduated basis 800,000 people in the 1830s, compensated the slave owners, and it was so expensive they didn't pay off the financial instrument until 2015, right? So immediate uncompensated emancipation, which is where we ended up through war, was a remarkable I say that simply because his anti-slavery conviction was something that he stood by. This actually proves the premise of your point, Charlie. He stood by that at, even while he was losing two Senate races in the 1850s, when he barely won the presidency with 39% of the vote. And he didn't waver from that. Now, how he did it, how quickly, how completely he deployed those convictions that's where he grew and that's where he changed his mind and he did so with the force of arms it's also true we should say that without the remarkable courage of the enslaved themselves the story would be different they went to union lines they in many ways forced the hand of the federal government to see that they had agency and the role of black men under arms in the Union Army is a remarkable and underappreciated story. 
I wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing process. When you sit down to write about your Everest, your fit. I need to get a process, so this will be good. <laughs> <laughs> when you say, okay, I'm about to become part of the canon of the 15,000 volumes that are having a conversation about Lincoln, do you go into it thinking, how do I make it different? How do I make it unique? How do I, you know, how do I put my spin on it? Is that, is that a pressure that you have as a biographer? Absolutely. I have a three-pronged test. I'm a Trinitarian Christian. So one is, does a topic resonate for me now, for us now? Self-evidently, that's a check there. Secondly, is there an argue, is there space in the scholarly conversation for an argument that I am comfortable with and that I believe is underappreciated, maybe being made in some ways, but is not as front and center as I would like to volunteer to make it? And that was absolutely true with Lincoln because of this. Well, a lot of recent stuff has been about his political skill. Absolutely. But I was more interested in the why than the how. And the third, which gets hard with Lincoln, but which we did, is, is there some archival information that can be put into the bloodstream? And one of the great things about this whole endeavor we're part of is that if you look hard enough, you can find some things. Nothing that changes the fundamental understanding of things, but there's a diary at the Library of Congress, Nathan Daniels, who was a, kind of a radical Republican, had been in Louisiana and left a great diary that had not been picked at as much. And then four or five other things, Library of Congress. The other thing I had a great deal of fun doing was Southern archives trying to get a sense of what that implacable minority believed. And so there was a lot there. It's very daunting. And one thing I believe in firmly is, look, this is my opinion. Uh, I'm not saying, I don't think there's such a thing as a definitive biography. Something can be authoritative, a book can be authoritative, but I don't think a, a biography can be definitive by definition. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so this is a contribution, I hope, about the nature of power and how it's exercised in a country that where each of our individual dispositions actually matters. That's the thing about mm. a democracy is that we do matter. And that's thrilling and terrifying. It's thrilling because, hey, we matter. It's terrifying because, oh, Jesus, you mean we matter? <laughs> when you start off to write a book like this, do you have a thesis in your mind and you research it and it bears out your thesis? Or do you do the research first and you go, oh, hey, look, I have a thesis. There's an initial phase where, where I try to find the thesis. There's a period of reading, which is in some ways the most fun part. You hope you find the emerging thesis. I have a two-step thing. Before I really commit, I try to write the introduction to see is this going to hold up? Well, as we say in my part of the world, will this dog hunt? And then for well, the last 20 years, this has happened each time. About the middle of a book, I will think, why on earth did I not go into a real line of work? And so <laughs> I will step back and write the epilogue just to say, all right, and let's see, with the idea being, can I get to that? Right. This is what I want it all to add up to. And so it, it's happened without fail each time that about the middle, 
I thought, oh God. And it's amazing. It's, and it's funny. The, I guess this makes sense. The epilogue tends to hold up better. And then I'll end up going back and reworking the beginning. Huh. John, I've read a lot of, a lot of biographies of Lincoln. And there are some things about him that just endlessly fascinate me. The nuances of the man are amazing. He was a depressive. He was a depressive who had an extraordinary ambition. How audacious is it to think if you're from the backwoods of Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois, which were the frontier at that point, could be president of the United States. And yet he had that kind of ambition. As you write, his ambition knew no rest, but at the same time, a depressive. I remember doing an interview with George W. Bush, and I said, when a president commits a nation to war, does he have in his mind the number of people that he might lose, the number of soldiers he might lose, and is the end worth that number, whatever X might be? George Bush's numbers were in the hundreds and low thousands. Lincoln was losing tens of thousands a day, a day. And as you point out, was even so pressed after Chancellorsville that he gave indications to his aides that he was thinking of suicide. That is so contradictory to me that you could have that kind of ambition, be a depressive, and get through the Civil War. It's remarkable, and you're exactly right. Both Bushes, I've been privileged to have the following conversation, as I suspect you have, where they both said, you know, it takes a lot of ego of 330 million people to say, hey, I'm the one. I think with Lincoln, Lincoln comes out of a kind of Jacksonian tradition of the self-made man. Henry Clay popularized the term. And the presidency... It's interesting that the 19th century presidency, to some extent, might have been more imaginatively accessible than the 20th century, particularly the post-World War II one. We, if you think about it, we had not yet fought a global war. The federal establishment was not what it became, obviously. There was a plausible path there, not least because Andrew Jackson had walked it. And Jackson was the first self-made guy, really, to get there. So my sense is that the price of that ambition is depression, is melancholy. When Lincoln suffered various episodes throughout his life, it was always at a time of loss. So he loses one of the first women he loved, and people take the knives away. They take his razor away. After the loss of two children, when the butcher's bill of the of the combat dead was was rising so high. I think the same thing that drives you to think that you should be at the pinnacle of power, I think that one of the checks on that is the capacity for humility. And if you get someone who wants the unchecked power but has no break on it, that is tyranny. That's the demagogue. That's the American Bonaparte or the American Caesar. Lincoln was a ferociously ambitious man who paid a deep emotional price, but therefore that made him worthy of the office. And I think that anyone who rises to that level and doesn't feel occasionally incommensurate with the challenges, 
is not someone you would want at the pinnacle. Cliche question, but we have a tendency to deify Lincoln. Now that you've come out of the other side of this, what, in your opinion, was his biggest flaw? That's a great question. Um, He did not follow the logic of his own argument about human equality and liberty. He believed that I spent a lot of time banging my head against the wall on this one. If you read the Lincoln-Douglas debates, the various speeches and letters he did on this, he believed that black people were included in the Declaration of Independence's assertion of human equality, but it did not follow that they should be granted the rights of citizenship. That led him to some extent to be a too long advocate of voluntary removal of black people from the homeland. I think the tragedy of Lincoln is also the tragedy of the nation, which is that we broadly put, and I speak from my position as a white man, have failed to recognize the implications and act on the implications of the promise of the declaration. And the fact that Lincoln could go this far down the road, but not a little farther, I think is the shadow of which we live under today. And he did get to the 13th Amendment. He got to, obviously, emancipation and abolition. But the intellectual insight, the philosophical insight, the moral sensibility were all there long before that. And yet he did not take that stride forward. To be fair, many abolitionists did not. Some of the most racist people were abolitionists. So I'm not being retrospectively self-righteous. But if you read those debates and you think, oh, my God, this is what he says. And yet he would then veer into views that were about white supremacy in terms of civil rights and social relations, as they said. And that's what I think, John, and I. this is presumptuous of me to say, that's what I think your book does so well that historians who try to write biographies of Lincoln wrestle with this chicken and egg problem, which came first, his anti-slavery position or his absolute belief in the necessity of maintaining the union. But you make very clear that he was anti-slavery from the beginning, though he may not have believed that blacks and whites could live together with true equality. And he came to that, his position on that evolved and eventually got him to the Emancipation Proclamation. But he did believe that you absolutely had to preserve the Union in order to do anything about the slavery question. Because if the South was allowed to secede and was allowed to be independent, then slavery would never have ended. And I think that is something that your book does very well. I appreciate that. And it's absolutely... It's always puzzled me a little bit. So what were people say, oh, well, you know, the union was more important. Well, yeah, because it wasn't necessarily more important, but it was co-equal because a Confederate States of America would have preserved slavery, I would argue, well into the 20th century. So they were conjoined. They were together. I don't think it's useful to break that apart. To be fair to the critics, Lincoln did for political reasons in the famous meeting in August of 62, where he talks about removal and colonization, but he's doing it for political effect. I am very careful in this. I should say, I don't believe 
that Lincoln should be seen as Martin Luther King in a stovepipe hat, but nor do I believe that he should be dismissed as a creature of 19th century white supremacy. I think that when you look at him whole, you find someone whose anti-slavery convictions grew out, I believe, of a childhood Baptist background, clearly economic and social considerations as well. But when Lincoln said, I am naturally anti-slavery, I cannot remember when I did not think and feel so. I believe that naturally he meant that exactly. He meant that from the beginning. And one of the things that I enjoyed most about this was climbing back inside these Baptist denominations that his family was part of, which were emancipation churches in the early 19th century. How many anti-slavery Baptists in Kentucky could there have been in 1809? I mean, just as a practical matter. And yet his parents, both his mother, his stepmother, and his father, were part of those denominations. That doesn't make him into William Lloyd Garrison, but it does mean that the air he was breathing was that which would incline him to oppose slavery. John Meacham, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. You have climbed Everest, which is... <laughs> Where's the oxygen? Which, you which is a flag. not easy to do. A book that I think brings new, brings new insights to a man who I think will be forever fascinating and who knows may even prompt 15,000 more books. And there was light. John Meacham, our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, John. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Some rapid-fire questions, which we keep saying don't turn out to be very rapid-fire. John, the most influential book in your life? All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. Why? I read it uh, the same summer. I read uh, The Wise Men by our friends Walter Isaacson and Evan Thomas. Uh, and in high school, I point out that I was in high school just to irritate Evan and Walter. It was the humanization of power. 
and the ambiguity of history. As you'll remember, you know, Warren's Huey Long was Willie Stark, and he talked about how you can't make bricks without mud and straw. And so both human agency and the role of moral ambiguity in history has been with me ever since. Lesser known book you recommend to everybody? Well, it's not lesser known, but one of my missions in life is to make people read Anthony Trollope. The 19th century Victorian novelist wrote something like 47 books, so there's plenty there. Barchester Towers, The Small House at Allington, The Last Chronicle of Barset. I think the book The Prime Minister is one of the great political novels ever. It's about a prime minister's psychology. I think he's a better psychological novelist than Dickens. And so I try to get people to read Trollope. I will admit, I will confess, I have three children none of whom will even begin to take this advice. <laughs> so maybe the Gibson family can, can get this. My English professor in the English novel would second your feeling with fervor. A revered novel that you read that you wish you hadn't. Almost anything by William Faulkner. And I might get run <laughs> out of my native land. But I don't believe when they say that Faulkner changed their lives. Because I just don't, I, I just find it largely impenetrable. The exception is The Unvanquished, which is sort of this, there's a Sartorist trilogy that's actually narratively coherent. But I, I find Faulkner defeats me. That says more, let me say for the record, before you start emailing. It <laughs> says more about me than about Faulkner. Faulkner's not on trial, I am, and I failed. But I, I, I believe it. And one more thing for him, just on the plus side, his Nobel Prize acceptance speech is one of the great pieces of oratory ever. Just read that and you'll have a lot more time to read Trollope. Well, I was going to ask you about the favorite book to uh, read to your kids, but I assume it was As I Lay Dying. No, I'm just kidding. What, what's, your, what's your favorite book to read to your kids? Well, I tried to read We had this great, one of these sort of New Year's resolutions years ago. I was going to read Emma. Jane Austen's Emma to my daughter, and we got about a chapter in, and I think she started watching Gilmore Girls, and that was it. <laughs> so I, I confess my failures to you as a father. Do you finish a book if you're not liking it? I used to insist on that, but now no. It's a sign of middle age. I read a lot of mysteries. I read a lot of thrillers. There's this fella, Adrian McKinty. Do you all know him? Northern Ireland. It's just really good stuff. I think Don Winslow is really good. Our friend Dan Silva, of course, Michael Conley. Those I almost always finish. But on occasion, I will admit defeat and move on. If I wasn't a writer, I would be? Oh, Lord. Well, I, I would be a lawyer. And one of the reasons I keep writing is because I, I live in existential dread that that will actually have to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and a final question, John. A question that we stole from Stephen Colbert, but I think it's illustrative. In five words, just five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Oh, more of the same, please. So, Kate, 
He's a terrific writer, and and I, this book is very enjoyable, I thought. He is a wonderful, wonderful writer, and I thought your discussion of the weird mix of things that Lincoln was, that he was a depressive, that he was ambitious, that he was often the center of attention, and that he was losing tons of troops. As somebody who struggles with depression, I don't know how I would have been resilient through the times that Lincoln needed to be resilient for. I just don't think I could have done that. Not when I was losing thousands of men every day. I just couldn't. It's He's a really interesting mix of things. And in some ways, they're paradoxes, I think. Don't you? He had an incredible ambition for a most unlikely politician from a most unlikely place. And had broadcasting been around at the time, he, he had a face that we say today, he had a face that was made for radio. Uh, There's a wonderful (laughs) anecdote about Lincoln. Opponents called him two-faced, which is not not something infrequently done by politicians who call their opponents two-faced. And Lincoln said, listen, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this one? My favorite is there's a story, there's that great story in the book, too, where Lincoln is out front doing something farm-like or wilderness-like, and a guy comes over and pulls out a gun and says, I vowed to shoot the first man I saw who was uglier than I was. And Lincoln said, and I'm paraphrasing terribly here, and Lincoln said, well, if I'm as ugly as you, then fire away. (laughs) So I, I I, I love also, too, that he had this terrific sense of humor about himself. Yeah, he was wonderfully self-effacing all through his career. There's actually a book, I can't think of the name of it now, just anecdotes from his speeches, one of the thousands of books about Lincoln. Anyway, it was a pleasure to talk to John Meacham. And There Was Light, again, is the new biography just released, 420 pages, as I say. And if you can capture Lincoln as well as he does in 420 pages, you have done something as well as to make it so well-written. Do something a little different as opposed to talking to an independent bookstore this time. We had planned to run a conversation we had with the owner of Second Story Books in Washington, D.C. Alan Stipek is his name. And we were so beguiled by his stories about selling used books. And he has a huge business in used books in Washington. We were so beguiled by his stories We thought we'd make a whole podcast out of how it's so different to run a second-hand bookstore than a store featuring new books. So just as a tease, we thought we'd give you one story from the conversation we had. You picked it out, Kate. I did. I absolutely did. This guy is such a knowledgeable expert on all things historical and antiquarian, especially books. And he talks about looking for the perfect egg cream with Joseph Heller. I mean, who does that? And there was a profile of him in the Washington Post, and apparently he started almost all of his conversations with this reporter with the words, want to see something cool? And so he takes this reporter, and almost on top of each other, the reporter describes an $11 million copy of John J. Audubon's Birds of America, the mummified corpse of Goldtooth Jimmy, who was a Detroit gangster, Henry Kissinger's paper, dinosaur eggs, or a first edition of The Great Gatsby, complete with a telltale error, sick and tired, on page 205, which is likely worth more than $100,000. This guy <laughs> deals in in great stuff. So we'll run that conversation with Alan Steinbeck, as I said, in, in an extended version in some future podcast, rather soon, I hope, because his stories are so much fun. But Kate did pick out one. Here it is. 
I want to ask, we always ask about most influential book in your life. So I want to ask about the most influential book in your life. But I also want to ask a question that's unique to you, which is which book is your prized possession as well? So that's a very difficult question to answer. Okay. Because I have moved a lot personal library of over 10,000 books <laughs> since 1973. <laughs> Actually, since 1968, when I came to Washington to go to college. And I think the reason I actually opened up the bookstore was I needed extra shelf space for my personal collection. <laughs> okay. And, and because of that, I was able to build up a personal book collection, which now has probably 800,000 books in it. I occasionally sell some, but you know, in real time, my favorite book of all time was Catch 22. Sure. Okay. Sure. I yeah. mean, it just philosophically represented a variety of areas of thought that you could utilize in real time. I was called down for detention when I was in high school, when an English teacher asked me why, and I responded, why not, which is from Catch-22, and I used <laughs> Catch-22 defense to get out of being suspended. Okay? I remember telling that story to Joseph Heller, and we went out, because we were both from Brooklyn, and we went out and we looked for the perfect egg cream. <laughs> that's real <laughs> yeah I mean I can I can name 500 books off the top of my head the band from the high tower I mean the prince I mean I could roll off titles that I mean I read five books a month for pleasure and so from my perspective of reading my most favorite book would be the book I'm reading currently because it gives me joy and it you know or I can, can go back to one of my 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 savior books, you know. Catch twenty two. You can always pick up a paragraph here or there and just relive it. Alan Stipek, if you listen to that story and you aren't intrigued and you don't want to hear more of Alan Stipek, then I just don't think you're a book lover. I am super, super, super excited to air our conversation with him. It was one of those things where we got on the phone and we looked at the timer and we realized we'd been on the phone for close to an hour and the time just flew. He's a fascinating guy and has been in the business for close to 50 years. Of selling secondhand books. Second Story Books is his store. There's a Second Story Book shop just off DuPont Circle in Washington, and he has a big warehouse in Rockville. And as he tells us, he looks at about a million books a year come through Second Story Books. People who want to sell them, or he wants to sell them. Anyway, fascinating guy. Alan Stipek from Second Story Books with just one of his stories that we will feature in the future podcast. Uh, next week, we're going to have John Irving, right? Yes, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. He's new. Opus is on bookshelves now, The Last Chairlift. If you love John's writing, you will love this book. When you say Last Opus, Opus is, <laughs> is probably a well-chosen word. It's 900 and some pages. I did not say Last Opus, oh. but I said, because I don't know what else John still has in him, but I did say Opus, and I say Opus just because it's a, it's, um, it's a very well-written but also very effective doorstop. I mean, it's huge. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a commitment of time, but if you like John's writing, if you get lost in his stories, and I do, and I know you do, Kate, it's an interesting read. The Last Chairlift, out now, and we'll talk to John next week. In the meantime, we want to tell you who makes this podcast possible. The book 
Case is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. John Meacham, when we talked to him, his, uh, his computer ran out of battery. So he didn't give us a little <laughs> coda to, uh, to, to end the podcast. So I'll give you the coda for this week. Is that okay, Kate? Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure it's going to be stunning. I can't wait. The coda to take us off the air. Just keep listening to The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie. <laughs> Always good when you can make a marketing coda. I like it. I like it very much. <laughs> <laughs>